Hey there, welcome back to the program. This is Jonathan Edwards, pureandsimplebible.com. Very thankful that you're back this week for a second part in the mini-series on trusting God with Brooks Criswell. We're studying in 2 Samuel chapter 24 about a very challenging situation and a very challenging view of God. And the question that's really being asked at the heart of this study is, can I trust in a God whom I don't fully understand? Now, there's certainly things that are very easy to understand about God, where he uh, reveals parts of his nature that we can follow and understand. But then there's other parts like this that maybe they don't make sense in a completely clear way, and so we have to process them together. And that's what we're doing. We're having a conversation we're processing some of these things, and we're asking ourselves, can we trust God? So let's jump back into the Bible study. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 24, where David has uh, made some very poor decisions, and as a result of them is encountering a unique and different part of God's character. With that in mind, let's jump back into the conversation with Brooks. You, you say we're going to come back to it, uh, and then you kind of weave back into the story David's response. So here we are kind of, again, we've kind of zoomed out to bigger thematic issues of doubt and trust. But if we could hone back in for a little bit, I think our listeners are going to want to know, which did David choose and, and what were the ramifications of that choice? So I think verse 14 on a little ways in Second Samuel really holds the key to this story. Basically, what David says is David says, you know, I'm I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercies are great. That's his response to the prophet Gad. So so God does. He sends a plague upon the nation of Israel. Countless people die. Um, And I I'll skip ahead just a little bit because I like to look at this section of verses in reverse. Okay. if you come on down to. To the end here where David says, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. So David's humble. He's heartbroken. He realizes that he is the one that has made this mistake and that thousands upon thousands of people are suffering because of it. And first, what I usually talk about is... Let's answer David's question. Okay, so what had these people done? What these sheep, what have they done? Well, there's a couple different ways to answer that. But again, remember, you know, as much as I'd love to, to speculate over this, this really isn't the point. So if, if, we, if you want me to insert some of this, I think it's fascinating. I'd be happy to. But at the end of the day, we don't really know why God punished the people that he chose to punish. We don't really have a satisfactory answer to David's question. So if you back up a little bit further, like, okay, well, how do we deal with this? How, if, we don't, if we can't answer David's question, we don't know why 70,000 men were struck dead. We don't know what sin they'd committed. Well, what, what am I to make of that? And I think David reminds us here in this story, or excuse me, God actually is the one who reminds us in this story of another attribute of his character that I think helps us put things in perspective. As the plague is ravaging the land, the death angel comes, or at least the the angel that's striking the people, comes to uh, the city of Jerusalem. And you remember, this is always, the city is always 
held a special place in God's heart. His, mm-hmm. his, this is the place where David, his servant, who was a man after his own heart, lived. And when God sees the destruction, when he sees the angel, I'll, just, I'll read the verse. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it's enough, now restrain your hand. And that, to me, showcases a portion of God's mercy and love. Depending on what view you take or what commentary you look at for this verse, this verse seems to indicate that that plague was stopped before it had to have been. Right. God had every right. He had every, uh, I guess right is the best word. He he would have been righteous in continuing that judgment and causing even more death. Mm -hmm. But when he saw the devastation, this was a God who who was grieved by the sin and more importantly, by the consequences that that sin brought. And he said, you know what? That's enough. And I think one of the things I brought up in my lesson is that, you know, God is, God has a great amount of mercy. He is just and his justice demands that he punish the sick or the, the wicked and sin sick, but his mercy is relentlessly. And I think that's the best word you can find relentlessly seeking to give us grace even when we don't deserve it. When when I hear this account, I imagine, uh, I don't think I have very many atheists who listen to this program. Um, <laughs> if they're out there and they listen, then you know, thank you for your support. Um, but I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who is a skeptic or doesn't love God. Because, you know, I think part of, a re- of, of having a relationship means that, that that relationship can be uh, mutually loving and beneficial, but it could also be antagonistic. And if somebody hears the same message that you just uh, stated, they might come to a very different conclusion, and that is, yeah, he might be merciful because he stopped, but he still killed 70,000 people. Like, we can't just skip over that. That's a lot of people. For something that one guy did, that seems seems like something a megalomaniac or a you know a tyrant would do. So how in in your study, um, how do we make sense of of you know God from that point of view? Well, again, the the point of this will be hopefully that even we aren't able to make sense of it because in all honesty, everything that I'm about to to say is I think is logical i think it's decent but it's not there's never a verse that explains it in the bible it says this is why god did this <sighs> okay i understand now i knew he couldn't have done something so horrible for no reason there's no verse that allows us to have that sense of relief um there are a couple things that are are good to remember first of all um uh, there's two verses in the book of romans that i think are very helpful romans three twenty three and romans 6 and 23 and they both are similar in passages, so they're easy to remember. But the first says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, okay. But then the second says that the just reward for that sin, the wages of sin, is death. Right. And essentially what that means is anyone who has ever sinned deserves death. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why, or at least how that, in my mind, makes sense. God gives us life. He has blessed us. Life is a gift. And really, if you want to think about it, it's not ours, but he has entrusted it to us. So if we choose to misuse that gift, we disobey him, we live sinfully, we commit 
all kinds of heinous acts, or even if we don't commit heinous acts, but we just choose to live the way we want mm-hmm. and not the way that this gift has been intended to use, mm-hmm. then God has every right to take that gift back. Mm-hmm. You're not using it how I told you to use it. I'll take it back now. And so when those men in Israel died, we believe that everyone, according to Romans 3.23, has sinned. Everyone who's lived to that age of accountability, except for Jesus, has has sinned and therefore deserves death. So they were all they were all justly condemned. But that's still in my mind still ouch, that's that's harsh. I mean, okay, sure, we all deserve death, but really seventy thousand people at once? Yeah. So there there's gotta be something else. Maybe they could die for their own sin. Why'd they die for David's sin? You know also uh, uh, I'm kinda getting ahead of your notes, but but the point I want to make is that doesn't seem fair. So Good. I think I think that was a prompt, actually. <laughs> so one thing I will point out at this at this interjection is, as much as as much as it pains me to say, in a lot of ways, God is not fair. That's and we right. Should, we should be thankful for that. If if we're being totally honest, as hard That's as that right. is, is because we don't all deserve the same. Th- well, I mean, we all deserve we all deserve death, but yeah. we all don't deserve the same rewards. The same God isn't fair. He's just. You know, you think about the, in, in a positive note, you think about the parable of the um, the servants, and I'm drawing a complete blank. You can help me fill in the gaps, but where uh, God sends, ser- a master sends servants out into his vineyard at multiple hours throughout the day, 6 a.m., 9 oh, a.m., right, right, right. 12 p.m., and then at the end of the day, he pays the people that have worked out there an hour, the same as the people that had worked out there eight hours and and sweat nearly to death and right as it's been over 100 degrees this week you can certainly appreciate that <laughs> in texas and he pays them all the same that's that is not fair and that's kind of what the workers at the beginning say they're like hey that's not fair and and he his response in the jonathan edwards translation is i'm just i can i get to do what i want because i'm just so i think that's important to hold on to even though it doesn't it doesn't necessarily fix the problems. It doesn't answer the question, but I think it at least it at least helps. But no, God isn't fair. So I think, and and we'll get to this a little bit later. But one of the points I I want to draw out is how God knows our hearts, and God is very long suffering. Mm. God is so patient with us. If He weren't patient, He would have ended the world thousands of years ago. Is there any need for for continued? mistakes by humanity for him if he if he wasn't interested in being long-suffering so in my mind for him to have condemned those people I think he knew there was no other option but let's before we get too far ahead of ourselves let's answer David's question a little bit more specifically in that what had Israel so we're not talking about the world we're not talking about Romans 323 what had Israel done and at the end of David's reign you might remember a couple chapters earlier in 2nd Samuel David had dealt with a couple but a a pretty severe rebellion at the hand of his son Absalom where I mean by and large it's the Bible says that Absalom stole the hearts of the people you have pretty much the entire nation Mm -hmm. no longer interested in who God said should be king and they thought no we're gonna do it our way well that's a pretty severe sin anytime anytime any nation honestly turned its back on God God dealt with them pretty severely right and that that never seemed to happen at least in this story, Absalom's reign came and in. David came back to the kingship, and, and all was right in the world. But those people who had turned against David, eh, they they seemed to go on with their lives as if nothing had ever happened. So it's possible 
again, pure speculation, but it's possible that's what God is punishing these people for, that these 70,000 men, well, they were some of the, you know, whatever you have to tell yourself to help you sleep at night, I guess. These were some of the ringleaders of the, the rebellion, and they, uh, but and it makes sense, but, but we don't know. It could have been, but it, again, it's, it's right. not spelled out in scriptures. So it makes it, it makes it a hard passage to swallow when we don't have the answers. We're in the dark, and it's such a dark passage. I like in your notes you you make this connection uh, to parents whenever they say this hurts me more than it hurts you, and so, uh, giving that sort of uh, pain and justice to God. So again, uh, and this is backtracking a little bit, but remember when I said God had stopped the plague early? That to me calls to mind of a parent that has to administer a consequence, but they don't want to administer a consequence. They don't want to see their child in pain. They don't want that to come about. I mean, think about it. If God wanted us in pain, do we, do we really think we'd be here in such comfort and peace? I mean, yes, there are there is turmoil in the world. There are people who are not in pain. But if God were vindictive, he could have done a whole lot worse. Yeah. So it just it doesn't make sense. So to me that... Uh, I don't know if I was ever told this hurts me a lot more than it hurts you. <laughs> but then again, I was usually fairly compliant. Didn't have to be, didn't have to be told that too often. The joys uh, of being an only child, uh, maybe. Hope, if dad's listening, hopefully I remember that correctly. <laughs> but at any rate. I have told it to my kids. I can say that as an adult. Um, I don't know if I've used that exact phrase, but I have, I have told them. I said, there is a pain of which you cannot know. And that pain is my heart breaking because I don't want to do this. Like, I didn't know, if it, I didn't read a parenting book about phrases to say before disciplining one's <laughs> child. But I just thought I'd go for it as far as, you know, being real and saying, I, I don't want to do this. I This kills me to do this because I love you and I hate seeing you in pain. But it it would hurt both of us more if I didn't do it, you know. It, at the end, the reason for discipline is always for our, our betterment. Um, and I think uh, this is a little off topic, but it was something I, I had in the notes that I always liked, is that, um, you know, we, we like to ascribe human emotions to God. And I mean, and certainly he has emotions, so he created ours. But in my mind, okay, the text says God's angry. The text says God is killing 70,000 people. In my mind, I'm like, okay, well, when I'm angry... I am ready to come down with an iron hammer and I'm not thinking about, I, I am very apt to over punish when I'm angry. God isn't that way. So simply because we see God angry and we think 70,000 people, wow, he, man, he really overdid it on this one. No, one doesn't equal the other in God's mind. Simply because he was angry, he gave exactly, in fact, probably less than the situation called for. Yeah. And it's, it's helpful to be, reminded of that fact because again you were talking about how when disciplining your children you say this hurts me more than it hurts you well if i'm disciplining out of anger it's probably not gonna hurt me more than it hurts whoever i'm yeah. disciplining and that's not the way god is i think about ephesians 6 4 where it says fathers do not provoke your children to wrath and that provocation would come from an anger that's not based in righteousness but one that's purely adrenaline you know emotionally mm -hmm. led where you're just trying to it's very reactive exactly and destructive too mm -hmm. whereas 
I've, I've tried to tell people, and, and I, I have to learn it myself, because, uh, Brooks, what I'm learning is that I'm very emotionally stunted. And uh, so I'm, I'm kind of like starting over. Have we made T-shirts yet? Because <laughs> uh, I can join that. Club. Okay, okay, yeah, welcome to the club. It's uh, I would tell you what it's like to be in it, but I don't have the words to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, I wouldn't be able to receive them well anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I would avoid it once I yeah heard the word. Anyway, um, I'm not. Let's see where am I going with this? I've kind of gotten off topic. You're welcome. I distracted you. Uh, oh, let's see. I can't remember. <laughs> when I, I'm editing it later, I'll be like, "You idiot! That's where you were supposed to be going." I almost did that two seconds ago with that first first statement about uh, over punishing. Before so I was able to wrap it up. I just kept talking long enough that I was able to remember. Anyway. Well, that was going to be the best point I ever made in the history of the podcast, but uh, alas, yeah. I'll just snip it out. I would hate to think that I was the one that brought out the best point <laughs> in your podcast. <laughs> that would just really put a damper on the podcast. Well, uh, yeah, that, it's all downhill from there, you know. So thank you, you you kept me from peaking. You're welcome. So now, yeah. I, now there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go but up from here. <laughs> I could have told you that before we started. <laughs> Okay, in your study, so kind of circling back to it. Um, Essentially what we have is we've got a story in the Bible that's hard. We know there's stuff in the Bible that's hard. We don't want to deny our doubts because that's only going to hurt things. So what do we do with doubts? We try to answer them, but we need humility and asking, asking and realizing that at the end of the day we need to trust God. So all of that brings it back around to how do we trust God? How do we trust anyone? Well, I, I talked about how I could trust my dad because I've spent time with him. And one of the last things uh, in Second Samuel that I like to point out is David's response to Gad, mm. where he says, let us fall into the hands of the Lord because his mercies are great. And the question I ask is, how did David know that? How could David say, I would rather God himself punish me than I would rather choose my own punishment, than I would rather have faith in any other man because I know he's more merciful than if we get thrown to our hands of our enemies. For example, mm -hmm. God is more merciful than they are. How did he know that? Well, I think it's because if you think about it, David wrote half the book of Psalms, literally about half the Psalms are attributed to David. David knew God backwards mm -hmm. and forwards. He had spent so many hours out with God one-on-one -on -one, praising him, begging him for mercy, begging him for forgiveness pouring out his heart and soul to him. And that's how we get to trust someone is by building that kind of relationship. David had built that relationship with God and it didn't come easy. It didn't come cheap and it, it wasn't quick. Um, and so it's a reminder that if, if, if we're going to try and get through our doubts, we're going to have to build that same kind of relationship with God. I'm not saying we need to write, you know, 75 chapters of <laughs> Psalms, but honestly, maybe it would help just to constantly focus on God and who he is, talking to him, reading his word and letting it talk back to us, you know, prayer, meditation, worship, time with our fellow brethren. All those things add up into that relationship with God. And so what I like to do to close out my lesson is to present a few studies or what I call case studies on who God is. So we've seen God, which in what I would seem is almost at his worst here. Mm -hmm. We see him angry with David, causing him to sin, quote unquote, because we've talked a little bit about sure. that. 
murdering, shall we say, to put it in a horribly negative light, 70,000 men, which again, we've put forth our thoughts and we don't believe that was the case, but be that as it may, we've got a pretty rough outlook on God at this point. If that was the only story you had about God in the Bible, I don't think you're going to win too many converts with that. Right. So what else do we know about God? How, how can we get to know him better? And again, I mentioned that every, uh, the Bible is God-centered. Therefore, every story we have in the Bible, it teaches us something about him. So the two stories I like to look at, one from the old and one from the new, because, again, um, I think it's easy to compartmentalize the Bible where we think, well, yeah, of course, the God of the Old Testament, boy, horrible, horrible deity, would want nothing to do with him, so glad we're under the love and grace of Jesus in the New Testament. Well, no, again, we pointed out, and I may have said the verse wrong, James chapter 1, anyway, somewhere in there, God doesn't change. It's the same God all the way through the Bible. So that same harshness, even though we hate to admit it, that God had, if you want to call it that, let's call it justice because that's yeah. what it is. Yeah, That's shown by Jesus. If you read through the New Testament, there are some there are some pretty staunch passages where Jesus is taking people to task. Yeah. But on no the No one preached side, more than hell on hell than Jesus. Yeah, and that's uh, that's not something you'll find uh that fact is not something you'll find broadcast very often, but that's right. 100% true. But on the flip side of that coin, the the same love that we attribute to Jesus is merciful. That's God all the way through the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. That that's been one of the greatest benefits of reading through some of the commentaries and and in the old testament specifically is what we've been focusing on is it's helped me reframe so many of those stories where i'm like wow god said do not commit adultery and the penalty is death what like okay i mean obviously horrible sin but but death really and it helps you reframe reframe why that is the case and why god's not being overly harsh but because that was a breakdown of the family unit that was a breakdown of how god was going to continue to grow the nation of Israel. That was a breakdown of how God was going to continue to teach generation after generation about him. And before long, if that breaks down, you've got the Israelites, boy, even without without it breaking down, you've got them pretty close to Canaanites, as is sacrificing their children on the altar. So this is where that all eventually leads. So a lot of that is really God's mercy. But anyway, sorry, tangent aside... <laughs> Same God all the way through the New and Old Testament. So I like to start in the Old Testament. And there's a story that I forget I forget if it was one of the commentaries or if it was just something I was thinking about. And I thought, I thought that'll make an interesting that'll make an interesting illustration for this lesson because it's not something I would have initially thought of. Mm. But let's talk about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, I don't think of uh don't think mercy. Of, you don't think of mercy when you think of it. Well, I have here here Sodom and Gomorrah. You have the right <laughs> translation. <laughs> Let me go find the message. Yeah. See if I, got uh, that on I think that one, that one might put it in more plain terms than what I will. <laughs> so uh, so let, let's talk about Sodom and Gomorrah for a second. Even, even your non-believing people, even people who don't know much about the Bible, probably have heard about those two cities. Why? Because they were horrible. I mean, this was about as bad as it gets. You've got thousands of people living in these two cities, and as one accord, with one mind, they are bent on evil. And not just evil. They are... These are people who would, um, again, the message may have this a little more clearly than I am going to put it, but these are people who would violate and murder innocent strangers that just happened to be caught in the wrong place at the wrong time if they were Mm -hmm. out in the middle of their courtyard after Mm -hmm. dark. 
This was not a good group of people. And yet, you've got this story, I think it's in Genesis 16, where God comes to Abraham and says, you know, I'm not going to hide from Abraham what I'm doing. I, I have heard the outcry against these cities. I've seen the innocent people suffer. And I'm going to do something about it. My justice demands that these cities be punished for what they have done. But there's a caveat in that Abraham has a nephew living in one of those cities. And you remember the, the nephew's name is Lot. So Abraham begins then to discuss with God. You know, God, I, my, 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 my nephew is living over there. Is, is, is there another way? What if, you know, you are a God who values righteousness. You wouldn't punish the righteous with the unrighteous. Would you mm-hmm. destroy these two cities and kill righteous people? Far be it from you, I think Abraham says, to do something. See, Abraham, too, also knew the character of God. He knows God does not punish the righteous. So Abraham says, what if there's 50 men who are righteous in these cities? God says, you know what? Okay, even though there's thousands of people doing all kinds of horrible things, if there's 50 righteous people, I'm going to let them go. I'm right. going to allow them to continue to, to live on, and maybe those 50 righteous people can slowly start to influence everything that's around. And I like this story because it asks, you know, that initial question we ask of like, how could God do this? 70,000 people? How could he kill those? How? It asks the same question, but in reverse. You're, you're wanting me to believe God is just. You're wanting me to believe that God protects the innocent, and he is letting thousands of people murder people day in and day out, day in and day out, and he's saying, nah, I'm, I'm going to let them go. Mm. How is that just? Right. So you see, again, God's got a bigger picture of this whole thing than we do, and we should be so incredibly thankful. But be that as it may, you remember the story, 40, 30, 20. Eventually, Abraham gets down to 10. says, God, what, what if there's only 10 righteous people? Five in each city, come on. And God says, okay, for 10 righteous people, I'm not going to destroy it. I'll let them live. Well, you remember the end in that not even 10 righteous people were found here. Yes. That's how bad these cities were. It's pitiful. But the point is the point is not that, well, you know, God destroyed him anyway, so, you know, let's just blow on, not, not worry about this. No, the, the point is God would have done it. God was willing to stave that judgment because of 10 people. Now, does that sound like a God who is going to willy-nilly murder 70,000 people just because he overreacts on one man's sin? Mm-hmm. I would will be willing to say it's not. Yeah. It, that, that doesn't, those two things don't line up. Right. So, again, we let what we can know about God help us with those difficult passages of Scripture. I think when you, you preached this at our meeting, it was this Genesis 18 story about Sodom and Gomorrah that kind of put it over the top of, yep, that, that guy's coming on my podcast. Because <laughs> I don't think I'd ever thought about a God's righteousness in that that exchange because his righteousness would demand that there that punishment happen and yet he's willing to let his mercy uh triumph over judgment not necessarily justice but judgment he, his mercy there's a verse in there somewhere mercy triumphs over judgment i know yeah you, you get where i'm going with it that mercy triumphs judgment and so here i don't think about mercy in sodom and gomorrah rare do i think of it but but you've helped me understand the God of the Old Testament was merciful, even in these times of, of when judgment ultimately does come. What was the New Testament when, that you make a parallel to? So the first story that came to my mind is in John chapter 8, I think it is. Uh-huh. 
Okay, perfect. I was like, I knew it was chapter eight. I couldn't remember verse, the four. Verse maybe three. I don't know how I would know that other than to. <laughs> well, hopefully you're reading better notes than what I've got. Oh, wait, they're all my notes. Anyway, uh, so John chapter eight, there's a story of the woman caught in adultery. Mm-hmm. And this one, maybe maybe you can see a little bit clear at the beginning in Sodom and Gomorrah as to how this shows mercy. But But think about what we're coming from here. You've got the religious leaders who have, the woman doesn't deny her sin. She was guilty of adultery. They're still living under the old law. I've given a little bit of uh, explanation of why that was such a harshly punished crime. Um, and you've got, you've got a, a justly, let's use the word just, condemned woman. Uh, I mean, to let her off the hook would almost be unjust, mm-hmm. as it were. Yeah. And if you think about it, you've got her standing before God. It wasn't that she broke the Roman law and he's he's passing judgment and saying, yeah, I'm interpreting this law. And you know what? That that's what they said. And you did it. Sorry. No, this, this was his law. He wrote it <laughs> like there's no there's this just adds fuel to the fire, if you were, if you will. And the other point I like to bring out here is if God doesn't punish evildoers, because we don't like to talk about punishment. But if God doesn't punish evil, how can we feel safe that he's going to protect us? What's the, like, how, how can we feel safe that at the end of the day, he's going to be just, that right. he's going to uphold right. these principles, even though they may seem unpleasant at times. But I think the story showcases how God focuses on true justice. You know, the, the men who drug her before Jesus, they weren't interested in justice. Right. Same thing as Matthew 22. All they wanted was to trap mm-hmm. Jesus and say, ah, oh, we got you. See, right. We, we knew you who you were all along. So he, he masterfully, not, not even sidesteps, but he masterfully deals with the accusations here. And you remember at the end of the story, how after writing in the ground, and I'd, I'd love to know what he wrote, but maybe, maybe someday in heaven, but after writing on the ground and each member of that, that mob slowly walking away for whatever reason, for whatever he did on the ground that, that shook their consciences just enough. It's just Jesus and the woman. And he kind of, he kind of lifts her up and says, you know, woman, what did no one condemn you? And she says, no one Lord. And here's his answer, which perfectly satisfies his justice and mercy. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now we we want to hang our hats on that and say, okay, see license to sin. Well, no, he, t- he tells her right. go and sin no more. He's, that's in essence, he's demanding repentance. Right. You can't sin anymore if you're repenting. But he's still a loving God through all of it. He's going to uphold true justice. He's not going to let these people who are trying to manipulate the law get away with their sin and all yeah. of it. So again, you've got another you've got another scenario where you see God where you see God's mercy. And again, does that does that sound like a God who would have just killed seventy thousand people because, well, I was pretty mad at David, and I guess I little, got a little carried away. Obviously, that's not that's not who God is. He was very intentional with that woman too, with the the way he worded the entire thing, the way he got her accusers to leave. It it just it speaks to that once you get to know God a little bit better, once you see who He really is. You don't have to worry as much. You don't have to fear those other passages that are that seem so horrible because, oh, I know God. I don't understand why he did that. That's a tough piece of scripture to interpret. 
But I can see what he did in these other pieces of scripture. And if he's the same God, which obviously we believe he is, and we could give countless others examples, then okay. He had a reason for doing what he did, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that doubt to him. I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to try and find answers, but at the end of the day, if there are no answers, I'm going to say, God, I trust you because I know who you are. You said doubt, and that makes me want to go back to one of my original questions it's at the beginning. So we're going full circle. Uh, in the book of James, and before I get to that, oops, hold on one second. Oh. We apologize for the technical difficulties <laughs> occurring at the moment. Um, so I, I quoted this verse earlier, and I want to read it again because I think sometimes it gets misquoted. And it's uh, James chapter 2, verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I feel like I've heard that used from time to time as mercy triumphs justice. Mm. And I would say that mercy never triumphs justice. It does triumph judgment. And justice and mercy go hand in hand. The judgment aspect of, of what God does in God's wrath, that's what can mercy can overcome. Um, and, and, yeah, I, I just feel like sometimes people try to get rid of justice. So they throw it out with judgment like it's... Yeah, that's not how it works. I mean, in our minds, I think sometimes well, we think, well, there can't be any justice unless there's a punishment that's administered. But in the grand scheme of things, God has a much better way of accurately assigning those punishments and really we're never called on to administer judgment um, at least not in the uh, at least not in the punitive sense of things that's God's job we can pass along what he's already said as his judgments Um, but there are certain things that you know that that we have to leave in God's hands Mm -hmm. and that that's hard because it seems like you know like okay well the woman caught in adultery, I don't see any judgment there. How, how is that justice? Well, that's up, that's up to God. That's in his hands. One of the, that's one of the great enigmas of Christianity is, is, is the scope of, of justice. Because ultimately, justice was satisfied on the cross. So, like, anytime someone questions how could a just God, blah, 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 fill in the blank, one of our answers should be, by sending Jesus to the cross, because justice always will circle back to the cross and be satisfied when Jesus pays the price. Yeah, that's a good point. I say, yeah, Jesus paid the the ultimate sacrifice. Like he, he, whatever justice demanded, he, he was it. Uh huh. Uh huh. Now, for those that have stuck with us from the very beginning of this, where we were talking about doubt, uh, I said I wanted to ask a question. And we, we know that there, there's different kinds of doubt, right? There's, like, like we've talked about, doubt from a place of inquiry, from wanting to question and better understand God is, a, is healthy because really um, it's, it's not so much about trying to throw rocks at, at the doctrine as much as it is just better understanding it. The other kind of doubt is what this scripture is. So I'm just going to read it and then maybe ask you to speak from the heart on it for a minute. But it says in verse uh, James chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. 
For that person was not supposed he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. How do you reconcile some of the things you were advocating for about uh, it's healthy and it's good and we should ask questions, we should, uh, we should doubt, we should inquire, etc.? How do you reconcile those with this scripture which warns us, don't, if, if you want to draw near to God, don't have doubt because, you know, you're like a, a tossing wave back and forth. So I'll give a couple of thoughts, and I probably would need to study this out a little bit better to, to make sure I fully get it right. This is one of those gotcha questions. Uh, I gotcha. Well, let's see. Let's see how I do <laughs> on my feet. Um, I would say one of the things I think is key is, so he talks about waves, and then he talks about, a double-minded man and I mean, maybe it's due to nuances maybe doubt is not the right word for things that that we're using but it seems to be here that we think of doubt and faith as antithesis of one another antithesis antithesis whatever antithesis Antithesi. yeah, go ahead anyway we think of them as polar opposites and in this scripture it certainly seems that they're pitted directly against each other so maybe doubt is not the right word for some of our other things but I think this is where a lot of our attitude comes into play is that when we doubt or when we have questions, we're supposed to ask in faith. Whereas James is here describing a man that is, he's tossed to and fro. He goes from one thing to another. And as soon as he doesn't understand something, it moves on to another. He moves on to another place for his answers. And that's not the kind of, that's not kind of person that, that, is going to be blessed by God. We need someone who is going to be not double-minded, not trying to hold like, okay, I'm going to get, I'm going to focus on what God says, but ah, I don't understand that. Let's go see what the world says on this. And we're going right. to move back and forth and back and forth. Right. Versus I'm going to say, okay, this is tough. I'm going to have some doubts or questions if we want to, if that helps you phrase it a little bit better, but I'm going to have faith that God is doing the right thing. And I'm going to stick with this. I'm not going to be double-minded, but I'm going to stick with God. And I think that's hard. I think we can only do that when we have enough of a ground relationship built with him through other things. I think you're you're totally right in that it, a lot of it's semantics and we have to kind of scratch and, and dig a little bit deeper. Our people use the word doubt in a healthy way. and We've done it for a long time. If anybody out there is going, yeah, but James 1 said doubt, so we, we can't use that word anymore. Um, this isn't a scripture, but uh, it's Uh-oh. a song we sing in the church, so it's close. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just a little talk with Jesus. I think it's second verse or third. I may have doubts and fears. My eyes be filled with tears. And so just culturally, we use that that term to express I have questions. But it, like in, in James 1, this guy, he was not coming from faith, whereas what you've advocated for in this study, and one of the things that's really kind of encouraged me from your study is when I come from a place of faith, where I want to be in a relationship with God. Sometimes people are scared. If I ask questions, maybe it's going to take me away. But, man, if you want to be in this, then there, there's really no question that will take you away. It will only make your relationship with him stronger. Yeah, it can only lead to, to greater growth. When you have that, I think that's a good, I think that's the best way to answer is that the basics is faith. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're doubting with faith or you're doubting without faith yeah, and that faith, which is only going to come again from 
that base relationship that we have with God, then that's what makes all the difference. Yeah, yeah. And it, as Hebrews 11 calls it, some translations say it's the, the evidence of things unseen. Others call it the assurance of things mm-hmm. unseen. And that blessed assurance that, you know, we have a God who loves and, and wants us to be with him. Well, before we end, I usually like to just say, is there, you know, like a final thought, If you do, maybe to summarize, and or if we missed something and you thought, oh, there was this one thing I really needed to bring up, uh, or if you wanted to give just the the 20-second summary of it, how would you end this study in a way where people could mm. walk away from it and, and feel like they've they've really got a better appreciation for 2 Samuel 24? I think summary is probably... All the all the years I had to write essays in college, it kind of drilled into the, okay. You, you always you wrap everything up with by restating all your stuff. So, so here goes. Here's your twenty second summary. So there are there are parts of the Bible that are hard, pure and simple. There are things we're not going to understand because we're finite. So when we come to chapters like Second Samuel, where we see God punishing sin, but it seems to be a harsh reaction, we need to remember that. You know, God has reasons. He has just reasons for doing what he's doing. Even when he is administering those punishments, it's not something that he derives pleasure from. In fact, it, in fact, it grieves him. And he's a God that relentlessly seeks to give mercy, even through the punishment, that his mercy triumphs over the judgment, but he still maintains the justice. And then at the end of the day, when we don't necessarily have the answers of why he did what he did, because even if we could explain away Second Samuel we're going to find other scenarios, even in modern life, where we're like, I don't understand how God did that. I don't understand how he allows that. So we're going to run across those scenarios. So the important thing is, okay, what can we know? Let's get to know God better. Let's focus on our relationship with him. Let's build that relationship. Let's pour in the hours. Let's do whatever it takes so that we have a knowledge of God and let that knowledge bloom into a trust and a faith in God. And even when we don't have the answers, if we know the God who does have the answers, then we don't have to worry. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for coming on and, and sitting with me tonight and uh, recording this. I hope that, that people will read Second Samuel 24. Um, your study focuses on uh, David and his immediate interactions with God. And, and there's, there's more. Like, you know, the, the second part of is that uh, shall I sacrifice that which cost me nothing? Yes, I love the yeah. I love the the repentance of David and the the fact that he gets it. He realizes that you know I'm not going to give God something that's worthless. Yeah. So that there's there's even more to unlock, and we invite people to check it out in Second Samuel 24. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, sir. It's been an honor. I'm grateful for that time that I got to spend with Brooks. I hope it won't be the last. So, brother, if you are listening to this episode at some point, get ready because I might call on you again. But I'm grateful for him and for his Bible study. It was great as a sermon. It was great as a conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as well. And I do hope that you'll study 2 Samuel 24 on your own. Uh, It's such a great chapter. There's so many lessons to be drawn out of it. So I hope that we drew out some for you and that you're able to observe and study others as well. Now, you can go to the website, pureandsimplebible.com, and there's a bunch of resources for you to utilize and share, and it's all free to download. So go check it out 
at pureandsimplebible.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. It helps my analytics. It gets it to where it advertises it to other people. It gets recommended and suggested to them. So help me share this ministry by liking and subscribing. And don't forget that God loves you very much. And you know what? I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you.